The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, God bless you. This is Pastor Chris C. And I am in what may be my absolute favorite place on the planet. This is my happy place. And it has been for people that love Jesus for centuries. I'm on the Sea of Galilee with my friend David. Uh, David is a ship captain. He handmade the ship so similar to one that you might have found in the first century. A small fishing boat that Jesus and his disciples would have been on. At some point, hopefully you'll journey with me. Uh, to be on this small boat. Uh, we've had a lot of fun on this boat. We've worshiped together, prayed together. We open the scriptures, we read the story. Usually when we get to the story of Peter walking on water, a few of us get inspired to try. Um, I did my best one year. I seemed to be up for at least a millisecond. It was great while it lasted. Um, but the water feels good. And the experience to be where Jesus and his disciples were uh, on the Sea of Galilee, where all around this area, the majority of Jesus' ministry happened here. He taught here, he calmed the waters here. Amazing things happened all around these banks. And so it's not by mistake today uh, that I get to share with you one of the most important narratives in all of scripture. In fact, anytime Jesus would have said to the disciples, get in the boat and let's go to the other side crossing over was always seen as a symbol of the exodus when god's people crossed over the exodus is mentioned over and over and over again in scripture in fact on mount tabor not far from here is the place believed to be where jesus went up with peter and james and john and they met with moses and elijah in hebrews 3 and 4 it talks about jesus as the new moses the one who was so much greater than Moses that could deliver us from what Moses never could. And in the Exodus narrative, as in this story, boats, like the one I'm on, have always been a symbol of salvation. Now, for those of us that have been through Hurricane Harvey recently, the thought of a boat as a symbol of salvation is not a stretch, right? I talked to many of you who uh, journeyed out in the waters, uh, one dear beloved Ecclesian with uh, a two-year-old and a two-day-old praying for a boat, praying that a boat would come. Maybe you've heard the story about the guy on his roof when it flooded and he prayed over and over for God to save him. And a boat came and he said, no thanks, right? You've heard the story. It's a cheesy story, but it's true. God sends boats to help people. And Ecclesia, even the Exodus narrative begins with a boat. In fact, what we see in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, is that we hear a word that emerged in Genesis, a word for a big boat, an ark, come back into the vernacular as the narrative emerges that Pharaoh, what it tells us uh, in Exodus is that uh, a new Pharaoh has emerged, uh, 
a Pharaoh that no longer knew Joseph. In other words, a Pharaoh that didn't love and didn't care for the Hebrew people. In Genesis, it tells us that when the Hebrew people became desperate, they kept coming back to Pharaoh for more food. There in Egypt, in the Nile, that fertile crescent area, they had so much food. And Joseph had foretold an eventual famine and many uh, experienced famine. And when the Hebrew people kept coming for food and more food, Pharaoh ultimately took their land and then eventually even took their freedom, enrolled them as slaves. And what it tells us in Genesis is that they basically volunteered. They said, we don't have another option. Give us food and we'll become your slaves. And it begins a journey of almost 400 years of slavery. Now you and I know that God made us to be free. It's the essence of the gospel. But the truth is, often we are not free. This narrative is a narrative about freedom, and it begins with a little boat, a really small boat. In Exodus chapter 2, after Sifra and Puah refused, these women should be famous, by the way. Um, Pharaoh comes to them, the midwives of Egypt, and says, I don't want any more Hebrew boys. I'm afraid the Hebrews are growing too large. They're going to be strong. They'll overthrow us. And he tells the midwives to kill the baby boys when they're born. If you know a midwife, you know a tough woman, right? We've had a few midwives, maybe you know a doula. Women that walk with women through birth, they're tough. You shouldn't tell them what to do and think you're gonna get away with it. They won't do it, even if you're Pharaoh. And Pharaoh went to Sifra and Pua, and they nodded their heads and said, sure, Pharaoh, and they went back, and there was no way. They loved the one true God. There was no way they were gonna let any babies die. One of those babies was a baby named Moshe, or Moses. And Moses was placed, it tells us, in a little ark, in a little boat. And you may know the story from there. Moses crosses over in a different way, from slavery to royalty. And in his place of royalty, he has to wrestle with the realities that he's a part of an empire that's holding his very people in slavery. Ecclesia, this teaching series, you're gonna hear from a number of our pastors, from Sean and myself. We're gonna be inviting you to study the narrative of Exodus. I'm calling it Exodus for all because you owe Pharaoh nothing. The truth is that all of us find ourselves as slaves. You may not be carrying bricks. You may not be building monuments to Pharaoh. But my gut tells me that every one of us has something in our lives that has mastery over us, that controls us. And so the question is, how do you identify your master, your Pharaoh? What are the things that hold you captive? If you've ever once described your journey, your narrative, your work as a rat race, you're describing slavery, this journey that you feel powerless and out of control. For many of us, things like food, drugs, alcohol, a desire for power or wealth, what people think. I can go on and on down the list. These things are not only attributes that define us, they often are our masters. We worship things other than the one true God. And so this journey is about identifying your Pharaoh. Now, to start, many of us don't want to acknowledge that we have a master other than God. In fact, we'd like things often to stay just the same. So the key is, Ecclesia, if we all have masters, Who's your Pharaoh? How do you find him? How do you identify him? And then how do we chart a course towards freedom? Hopefully, towards the promised land. And to start with, we need to know that Pharaoh always says the same thing. 
Pharaoh always wants the same thing. What's, what's a Pharaoh like? Well, ancient Pharaohs were people that wanted ultimate power. They wanted worship. Uh, they wanted so much wealth that they, because they really thought they could take it with them. What could be more ridiculous now, right? We discover these pyramids, and you've got these dead bodies wrapped in uh, mummified material with all their wealth around them as though it was going to do them any good. It does them nothing. And so often these empires are fueled by this idea that wealth is the thing. And maybe you're spending your life doing what slaves do for Pharaoh, making more bricks. What does Pharaoh say? If you want to identify your Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh say? He's always saying the same thing. You're lazy. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. Make more bricks. What are the places in your life that it feels like you're just making bricks? This is what the Hebrew people did. They made bricks. What did they do the next day? They made bricks. What did they do the next day? They made bricks. Ultimately, when Pharaoh was afraid that they might try to escape, he said, you got to make the same number of bricks. Now I'm going to take away the straw. you still got to make the same number of bricks. It was impossible. They couldn't do it. And maybe you have places in your life that you feel like you're making bricks. Ecclesia, we are made for so much more than that. If you struggle to know who your Pharaoh is, you listen to the places that you hear those voices. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says it this way, I wouldn't want you to be ignorant of our history, brothers and sisters. Our ancestors were once safeguarded under a miraculous cloud in the wilderness and brought safely through the sea. Enveloped in water, by cloud and by sea, they were, you might say, ritually cleansed into Moses through baptism. Together, they were sustained supernaturally. They all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and they all drank the same spiritual water, flowing from a spiritual rock that was always with them. For the rock was the anointed one, our liberating king, Jesus. So, Ecclesia, if you know you have a master, if you know you have a Pharaoh, why don't you leave? And the simplest answer I can give you is that you and I have a condition that's called Stockholm Syndrome. Maybe you've heard of it before. It was first cited in 1973 when a group of uh, criminals in Stockholm, Sweden, took captive a large number of people. They ended up holding on to them for more than six days. At the end of their captivity, they came out of this experience and they said that the police were the people that were a problem, not the captors. They had so been attached to their captors, they had this uh, awkward or strange or inappropriate sense of gratitude that their captors let them live, that their captors fed them. They actually, in six days, became attached to their captors. They didn't want to leave. In fact, some of them um, rallied their resources and their money to help pay for the defense, the criminal defense, of the same people that held them captive. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? And yet the truth is, for most of us, the places that we find ourselves in slavery, maybe you're a slave to food. And the reality is, you'll make food the hero if you can. There's so many ways that we do this. In fact, one of the stories of Casey Duggard, a young girl who was uh, tragically kidnapped, separated from her family, lived with no knowledge of how her family was doing and they didn't know if she was dead or alive. She was treated poorly. She birthed children of her captor and yet ultimately she said, that she felt some affection for her captor. She said, he would try to make me smile with these silly voices he would make. I feel this was all part of his plan to manipulate me into being compliant with him. 
He used his powers of persuasion to gain my trust. He became my entire world. I depended on him for food, water, and my toilet. Can you imagine, Ecclesia? This evil man who kidnaps a young girl ultimately controls her to the point that, strangely, she no longer sees him as the enemy but as her friend. That's what pharaohs do. The people of Israel had been captive in slavery for 400 years, and yet you hear them often speak about it, and they make it sound like it was a day at the fair. We had all the food we could eat. We sat around pots of meat. We had garlic and fish. And Where the truth is, right? these were people who loved each other and loved God, yet they'd been in slavery so long they couldn't call slavery slavery. Pharaoh was killing their firstborn children, and yet they didn't think slavery was a big problem. Ultimately, God intervened, and finally God's people began to cry out to God to be liberated from Pharaoh. But even as God sent Moses, on most of the journey, this is what you're going to find. They wanted freedom, but they didn't really want freedom. That's the battle we're in as we make this journey together. I believe that the path that God has for us, the teachings that we're going to hear over the coming week, are going to be a call, a beckoning, to invite each of us to leave behind the things that have been holding us captive. Things that right now you want to say, it's kind of holding me captive, but it doesn't seem like it's that big a problem because there's some things I really like about this captivity. God called us to be truly free. And as we hear now in the book of Hebrews, that it's by faith the people crossed through the Red Sea as if they were walking on dry land, although the pursuing Egyptian soldiers were drowned when they tried to follow. Hear this, Ecclesia. This is a faith journey. It's not based on your talents. It's not based on your persistence or your willpower. It's when we choose to lean in together and let God be God. God's the one who can free us from our pharaohs. As our dear brother, Jim Doremus, comes to share with us, to lead us in prayer, and to direct us towards communion, I ask you to open your hearts as to what God would have you to hear. And pray with me that we together could make a path towards the promised land. Good morning, Ecclesia. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters, as a community. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody said, are you the guy who spoke last week? Well, you've just made a grave mistake. You slighted Jack Wisdom about 25 pounds of muscle and about 30 IQ points. <laughs> it's my privilege to serve here at Ecclesia as the community pastor after serving for 13 years as the pastor of Memorial Drive Baptist Church. Pastor Chris has painted a great picture of slavery and pharaohs. We all have had things in our lives that have sought to have mastery over us, things that controlled us rather than us controlling them. Some of these items are fairly benign in nature at first appearance, things like a job or food or drink or recreation. Now, there are some other things that our culture would promote that almost seem benign as well, power, wealth, status, or security. And there are certainly other items that are much more caustic in nature. 
But what's the big deal? I mean, why should we even be bothered about those things in our lives that may creep in and have mastery over us? In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we find Paul writes these words. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. Between the years of 1977 and 1982, Janet, my wife, and I served on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. Today it is known as CRU. Our first three years were spent at the University of Florida, and God opened some amazing doors to work with the athletic teams there at the University of Florida. This is back in the day when it was permissible per NCA regulations where you could have an athletic dorm. Only athletes could live in the dorm. It was also permissible to have a training table where only athletes could eat the food. One day I walked into the athletic dorm, Yon Hall, and went down to the training table, saw several guys that I was working with, and this one guy, his name was Kyle. Kyle was a defensive back. He called me over to where he was uh, eating his lunch. He said, Jim, I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. He said, I'm really struggling with this thing of lust. Well, you know, that's not unusual for, to have this conversation with a man, particularly between the ages of 18 and 21 years of age, but the training table in an athletic dorm is not the place to have that conversation. So I said, well, listen, let's finish eating lunch, then let's go up to your room. So we did. We walked up there. Kyle opened the door. He walked in. I followed him in. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. If Janet, she was here at 9 o'clock, okay, check that box off. She was here at 9 o'clock sitting right over there. If she were here, she would tell you that I'm not the most perceptive person in the world either. But when I walked in, I knew immediately why Kyle was having this struggle. For you see on the walls, the ceiling, and at one time probably on the floor till the traffic wore out, there were pinups. I turned to him, I said, Kyle, the Pope would have a problem with lust in this room. (laughs) Well, Kyle and I had a conversation, but Kyle had identified this area of his life that was controlling him. So what do we do? What do we do if we identify it? What's the next step? I have a plant with me this morning. Who can tell me what sort of plant this is? Hydrangea, that's exactly right. Now, I have a question for you, and I'm going to tell you right off the bat. This is a setup. How does this plant grow? Tell me. This is feedback. It's okay to talk in church at this point, all right? Some of you are raised where I still have scars on the side of my arm where my dad would pinch me when I would talk in church, okay? How does this plant grow? Sunlight, water, Okay, you had nutrients, I mean soil, or some type of growing medium, it could be water. 99.999% of the people that I would ask that question to would respond in the same way that you have. But it's wrong. That's not how a plant grows. A plant grows through cell division. It is our responsibility as the gardener 
to provide things like the right amount of sunlight versus shade, to provide micro and macronutrients, to provide water, all of those things, that's the responsibility of the gardener. But this plant is hardwired to grow. It's programmed inside of that hydrangea to grow. Not to grow is abnormal. Now, there are some things that will keep it from growing, pests and pathogens. That will limit the growth of this plant. As believers, we're just like this plant, is that we are wired to grow. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes these words. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, I know that you're going to grow because you are hardwired to grow. And before that verse and after that verse, he says why he's so confident about that. But it's our responsibility. It's abnormal for a believer not to grow. What will cause us not to grow? When we don't provide the environment, we don't provide those things that are necessary for growth. Today, when you talk about spiritual growth, you'll most likely hear the term spiritual formation. In the early part of the, well, say the 19th century and maybe midway through the 20th century, is that spiritual formation was thought largely of spiritual practices. My working definition of spiritual formation is this. It's a process whereby God's Holy Spirit works inside of us to change our lives to look more like the life of Jesus. This process involves spiritual disciplines and community. In the 19th and midway in the 20th century, we mainly talked about spiritual practices, Bible study, prayer, service, a myriad of things. We didn't really talk about community, but this process in, in spiritual transformation involves the practices and community. In the latter part of the uh, 21st century, or this part of the 21st century, we've swung over this way, and we talk a lot about community. We as humans suffer from what has often been called the peril of the pendulum. We're way over here, or we're way over here. It's very difficult to find that healthy balance. But in order to grow, in order to be spiritually transformed, there has to be that balance. This is not something that's new to the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes these words, Beloved, just as you have always obeyed in my presence, now much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, it's God who is at work within you. You are programmed to grow. He said, but your responsibility is to work it out, to provide that environment of spiritual disciplines and to be a part of a community so that God can do everything that he wants to do and we can bear fruit. So as we journey through this series of Exodus for All, what is your Pharaoh? What's causing you not to grow? What is short-circuiting that spiritual dynamic in your life? This coming Wednesday is 
Valentine's Day. That's exactly right. Guys, that's a heads up. That's free. Okay, you didn't have to pay anything for that. It's also Ash Wednesday. You'll hear more about our Ash Wednesday service here on the west side uh, during our announcement time uh, in a few minutes. But Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the liturgical season that we call Lent. It's that period of time leading up to the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. What a great opportunity this is during this Lenten season to identify those things that might be pharaohs in our life, those things, those pests, those pathogens that keep us from being all that God wants us to be. What a great opportunity in this season to begin some spiritual disciplines like prayer or Bible study, reading our Bible, service. In the nine o'clock gathering, I mentioned that uh, on Bible reading is as close as your phone. You can go to search, and if you just type in Bible, version will come up. It's the most popular app. Well, after the service, somebody was quickly to tell me that uh, the voice is not on version. So, for the sake of still being employed, okay, the voice is on Bible Gateway. Okay, let me say that again. The voice is on Bible Gateway, and you can go and you can read the, the voice there. You know, really, I don't think anyone is really concerned about the version that we read is that we just allow God to speak to us. What a great opportunity this season is to join a small group there again so that that spiritual transformation can happen. Would you pray with me this morning? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together, Lord, to focus on Pharaoh's, Lord, the deliverance that we have because of what Jesus did on the cross, the freedom that we have as brothers and sisters living under grace. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to be honest with you and with one another so that we can be all that you want us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we move into our time of communion, would you join with me as we pray this prayer of confession? I will read as the celebrant. Please respond as the people. Most merciful God, we confess to you and to one another that we have failed to love you with our whole hearts. Against you alone we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and left undone. We have fixed our hope on things that we know will fade. Free us from every attachment that draws us farther from you. We have closed our eyes to the outcast and hurting. Restore our sight that in our every neighbor we would see you clearly. Forgive us, Lord. We are broken and only in you are we made whole. Heal us, Lord, create in us clean hearts. Restore in us the joy of our salvation, that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.